Hi everyone, it's uh, really great to be here. Uh, really excited, so I think we can start. And um, maybe to start, I will share from my um, um, experience, like personal experience. We are talking about privacy, so let me share some some, some uh, stuff. Um, actually, recently I got the chance to visit um, one of the best doctors in Israel. Actually, is the best doctor in what relates to uh, growth hormones for uh, for kids for children. Um, so when uh, when you are going to this kind of doctors, one of the uh, crucial um, decision to make is based on um, your hand. Basically, they are taking an X-ray of your hand, and they want to check the um, how old. Uh, the bones, uh, what's the age of the bone? So when we are getting into this doctor and he like he had 30 years of experience, he's highly, highly um, experienced. So when, when we start uh, the analysis process and basically you need to understand how crucial it is because once you decide to take the hormone, it's about 10 years of taking uh, daily shots. And it can literally change your life, right? If you're gonna be tall or small or whatever. So when, when we hand him the X-ray uh, photo, what he actually did, he went to his library and he bring the, that kind of book with uh, 500 pages of uh, X-ray um, photos. And he actually did something amazing. Like visually, he was starting to uh, analyze and try to find the best match. So, and when I saw that, I thought it's like, it's really crazy when you need to take uh, that crucial decision in 2021, you know, to change someone's life and you are doing visually, I thought like, we must have AI here, right? So it's, it's really crazy. And we know that today, these kinds of application can be execute, executed very easily. Like one of, the main barriers today to reach there, it's uh, security and privacy regulation and, um, and threats. And basically this is um, some of the topics that we are going to discuss today, how we can help the industry uh, to grow fast, um, moving from the cloud to the, to the edge and really process how high, um, high performance and low latency application to help threat uh, to help uh, treatment of, um, of uh, customers. Uh, this is part of uh, the stuff we are going to discuss. My name is Ido Elstock. I'm the chief product officer at Hub Security uh, for the last three years. Um, before that, uh, I'm an engineer, electrical engineer, and I, I was serving in the IDF in one of its uh, cybersecurity units for about 20 years. Um, building um, products and projects um, in the cybersecurity defense. So it's really great to be here and um, let's start. Great, thank you, Ido. Um, also glad that you could be here with us today. So thank you for taking the time. Now I'd like to take a few minutes to do a quick introduction around, starting with Peter. Would you mind giving our listeners a bit of background on yourself and your field of expertise? Um, why are you with us on the panel today? Right. I don't have a great story like Ido had, unfortunately, but uh, 
I'll tell you about me. Um, so I'm based in uh, Boston area. I work at Pfizer and I'm the machine learning and AI technical lead um, at Pfizer. I spent most of my career looking at uh, in a digital group working in drug discovery. And I'm really trying to focus now on pushing AI everywhere across the company because I see the potential just like Ido described of what AI can do and how it could transform different processes within our industry. I've recently shifted over to a statistics organization and I'm more focused on clinical trials and how we can put AI there, which is a fairly new area. Um, in addition, I teach software engineering and machine learning at Harvard. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Peter. And we're glad you could be here with us uh, today, too. Um, Amit, are you raising your hand? Do you want to go next? Oh, I was adjusting my hair a bit, but I can also use that as my cue to introduce myself. Yeah, good, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm thrilled to be part of this discussion with such an esteemed guest of panelists. Um, I currently work at Dexcom. We're one of the world's leading uh, continuous glucose monitoring solutions for people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes to allow them to bring um, data uh, to their phone and be able to manage their diabetes better. Um, I've worked mostly in digital health. My, my, I've always been in park management and, and marketing and am thrilled to uh, provide uh, input on how organizations really broadly, I'm not speaking to my job in specific, I'm speaking to the industry overall. I've had a work experience at Medtronic, um, Fitbit, as well as Dexcom to speak to how the whole industry is approaching. It's a very important topic. So I, I look forward to speaking um, on this discussion. Great. Um, Ian, you can go next. Hey, everyone. I'm the CISO of SAJAX, a UK-based threat intelligence company. Um, I like to say that we help organizations hunt bad guys across the globe that are targeting everything from intellectual property to trying to drop ransomware into your environments. I also have spent five years as a healthcare architect um, moving systems into centralized management and uh, have a broad range of uh, knowledge around the challenges of the healthcare environment from an architecture and networking standpoint. Great. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining us today. Um, last but not least, you get. Hi, everybody. I'm Miguel Diakabana. I'm currently working as a digital health um, consultant and also co-leading the digital health and um, technical advisory group at the World Health Organization. Uh, I've I fell into the health space really because of the technology aspect of it. Um, I grew up in the US and then um, over a decade ago made the decision to return to my home country, the DRC, and really with the plan of seeing how technology can be used to um, move things forward. I started out with introducing the use of technology, so distance learning in the education sector, then eventually went to community health um, community development with mining companies. Uh, and during Ebola in 2015, I made the shift um, to healthcare. Uh, I've worked really to develop uh, products that were used. I, I saw it as advancing um, uh, change in communities and realized later that they were really massive data collection tools. And so my current interest is in working with policy standards to ensure um, responsible development, uh, just responsible um, use of the data that the various tools that I once deployed and that are continuing to be deployed um, these days are uh, used well. Uh, and also as we're introducing um, AI in places, I work primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so we there, there's a lot of work to be done to ensure that um, 
that this actually helps move us forward and not cause more issues. So that's what I'm focusing on right now. It's good to be here with all of you. Great. Um, and you get, I think that's, um, that's really fascinating where you're coming from, your perspective, especially in specific part of the continent. And maybe I'll just start off with you then um, and ask you a bit about how technology and AI, technology, AI, and big data um, are helping to improve the health situation in African countries. Yeah, so there's been massive advancements in just the past several years. Um, what's used to be what's known as e-health or digital health has been working, um, being deployed in Africa for over a decade, and it's just in recent years that we're really um, leveraging the various types of technologies and um, looking deeper in the data that we already have um, to try to streamline some of our health programs. I mentioned earlier, I know COVID is probably what people would be interested in, in how um, digital health was used, but I can best illustrate uh, the, the use of technology data with um, stories from Ebola, for example. So we, um, the, when the Ebola was uh, was going on, I, I was managing the, the emergency call center in, in Guinea. There was something similar in, in the three countries, Liberia and Sierra Leone. And the call center initially was simply a space where people called us and said somebody in our family is sick or somebody just passed away. And we would transfer, we would call um, the Red Cross and have them go and examine the situation to determine if it was an Ebola case. It wasn't until a few months into the into that we realized we are getting a lot of information about the health situation and that we should really start looking at this data uh, with a bit more scrutiny. Um, and, and on top of just the patient uh, or prospective patient data we were receiving, we were also getting, because, because of our connection with the telecommunication companies, we were getting a lot of location information and we could use that to help not just um, respond when there's an issue, but also to try to plan our, our uh, interventions. And so we layered um, a GIS uh, portion to it. And with that, we were able to map out where there were sort of hot zones where most of the cases were coming from, where there were, uh, and also uh, identify areas where there were cases, but they weren't necessarily um, reporting us. That led us to make decisions such as uh, what types of information campaigns we need to we needed to put in place where there was reticence in terms of um, contact tracing and reporting prospective cases uh, the same um, uh, strategy with layering uh, geospatial information with um, prospective uh, patient data we also deployed it in um, ending wild polio in central and west africa we um, I, we realized that for for decades Africa has been trying to declare the continent uh, polio free as its vaccination efforts grew, um, but every time we got close to declaring polio free, there would be a case that would pop up somewhere, and and it was it was quite. Um, it was concerning because we the, the vaccination rates, according to our ministers of health, were rising. And so when we decided to add uh, a geospatial component, uh, the first thing was to conduct an assessment and identify where we were vaccinating and where we might have missed. In, in utilizing GIS, we ended up finding areas where we didn't even know uh, people were living. And so, uh, we made that a, a, um, a normal part of our health interventions for the polio effort. And it took about five years where we identified uh, places we didn't know existed. 
uh, we included them in our vaccination planning campaign and then ensure that vaccines reach them. And eventually uh, in 2019, uh, Africa was able to declare itself um, polio free. So there are still vaccine derived cases that pop up here and there, but um, the wild polio um, virus has been eradicated. So these, um, these efforts have laid the ground for um, when COVID happened, we knew right away, we needed to not only limit ourselves to um, the electronic patient records that our countries could access, because much of it, I'll touch on this later, much of it is housed with partners who come and help us with our health interventions. But we needed to make um, geospatial information part of, um, part of uh, our response efforts. So over to you. Ah, thank you, that's super interesting. I wanted to get Peter, Peter, why don't you share with us a bit about the main challenges from your perspective um, in AI relating to privacy, cybersecurity, and explainability? Sure. Um, well, there's lots of challenges. Uh, some of them are the ability to make sure the data is reliable, is coming from the right source, um, how you assert that it's um, so we have different data sources that we have to put together. Uh, we have to uh, take those data sets and make sure that the privacy is accepted. All the clinical data is blinded already. And so we have different standards and layers for getting that. And so within pharma, we typically have so many different databases. One of the first challenges is really aggregating those different data sets together and finding those different components. Um, if you add the addition of blinded data, as we typically have in federated systems and other systems that are regulated, um, that challenge is increased. And so we have different data storage centers that allow us to uh, manage our clinical data. But on the other hand, for drug discovery, we have a, a different set of constraints in, in objectives where the privacy is no longer patient security, it's actually the ability of proprietary data and secret data and aggregating data from different uh, places together from commercial vendors who are providing different data sets to our internal data sets and managing them together. So with so many different places and, and providing data for so many different purposes at the same time, I think that data challenge is probably the, the dominant uh, issue that we have. And so included in that, we have the privacy layer, we have the cybersecurity layer on top of that. And so some of the trends that we see are uh, different platforms are emerging, perhaps in different places within the country. And so we have different technologies that are rising for the clinical space, different ones for the drug discovery space, which prevent um, or make it more difficult uh, to actually do the AI aspects on those different data sets. And so we have challenges from data, we have challenges from privacy, we have challenges from the platforms. If we add on additional things like GDPR, where different data can be removed from a data set at any point in time uh, to meet different privacy demands, we have an additional layer of different decisions that we might make on that data. Uh, for instance, we might have missing data from some components. The way we handle it, if there's a couple of patients missing versus many patients, um, would change the approach. Uh, so there's a lot of different challenges around the space, um, and I'll, I'll leave it there. Great, thank you, Peter. Um, super interesting. Ido, tell us what kind of assets do, um, do you think actually need protection in AI? And maybe you can help define some of them for us, um, and some of the main or the primary cybersecurity risks that come along with them. Sure, thanks for the question. Um, 
I guess, I guess several of the main assets when dealing with uh, AI systems and um, companies that today are investing tons of efforts in development, in training, and actually they're building their whole business on top of uh, the AI system or the machine learning application. And this is becoming um, a crucial asset for the company. Basically, it's the IP of the companies, the intellectual property. And this puts uh, hackers in a very uh, motivated uh, position to try and hack it. So I guess the, the model itself as an IP is one of the biggest assets that needed to be, uh, needed to be secured. Um, this is one. And, and you know, when companies today are developing and building those systems, they're usually using standard servers, which are non-secure or using a GPUs to accelerate uh, algorithms, which never built to, to be secure, but to accelerate algorithms, mathematical algorithms. So they're where the hackers are uh, looking for, right? When, when you are using a non-secure uh, environment or a server, and it, uh, the attack surface is very, very um, large for those uh, sophisticated hackers to, to extract the model, to gain access and uh, get uh, access to the parameters and steal the IP. So I guess this is one. Uh, second point is uh, more related to the, um, to the issue of um, explainability. So one of the basic root causes for um, the weaknesses of uh, cybersecurity in machine learning or AI uh, systems is the lack of uh, explainability. It's like a black box. So there's inputs and outputs and it's a black box. And this gap or lack of explainability opens um, a route for uh, or space for uh, attackers um, to, um, to input malwares or to implant, implement, uh, implant uh, backdoors inside the model. Like for instance, they can uh, inject malicious data in the training process, right? In the training phase. So basically they can train the system with a, a malicious data to alter the uh, inferences results. So think of a way uh, of a case where um, security breach results in a medical device that doesn't really um, detect a cancer uh, tumor, for example. Or if you're uh, talking about uh, autonomous cars, think of a way when uh, suddenly all the autonomous cars doesn't really see traffic lights. So that can, that can happen when we're talking about black box and, um, and um, the ability to protect it because of the, the lack of explainability. And I think the third is about the client's data. So there is a very, very um, private data for the client, for the uh, um, customers. And as the service provider, you need to keep it secure and enable a um, secure environment. So basically only authorized persons or the data owner itself, only him can have access to, to his uh, data. So everything needed to be secured, running in a secure environment that is monitored and um, can be go can be governed by the uh, by the service provider. 
For example, you don't want any one of the IT um, personnel or the administrator of the platform to gain any access to the private data of the user, of the clients. So that kind of isolation and separation is very critical when dealing with uh, AI. Great. Uh, thank you, Ido. We get back over to you. Well, I want to get your uh, your input on this, but how to um, how does the general public view data, and what have you seen regarding their comfort levels with sharing data with health providers? Um, and how are the governments, you know, in Africa addressing any uh, reticence around data sharing? Um, so, because of the the static nature of um, of many of our programs, the whole idea of data sharing is still quite at its earliest stages. Um, so, in terms of the public's understanding of data, you've got different groups. I think, as it is um, the case anywhere, you've got the very sort of tech savvy those who understand the the value, the risks involved um, with data, and especially the private sector, the entrepreneur, um, uh, entrepreneurs all over Africa understand what that means. And then you've got, when we're talking about the health sector, the majority of the people aren't quite, they aren't quite clear on um, all that is happening. So data uh, historically has been used as, um, as an exchange for services, right? The way health programs, for example, work is that we, I'll use the maternal and child health um, program. So if we go into um, a remote area, establish some services to, fo to um, follow uh, women during their pregnancy. And we would collect data from them. And in exchange for that, they, they get these services. And what happens with that data depends on whatever research program funded um, this initiative. Often what happens is that that data is collected, these women or um, people get their services, and then um, that, that's it. So they're not quite you know, sure they're not concerned with what's happening with it afterwards. Um, it is, it falls, the responsibility to explain what happens to that data falls on whoever is providing the services or it's really at the, um, it's really at the, at the discretion of the researcher who funded this information. So much of Africa's data at the moment is at the hand of whoever paid for to to receive it granted you know the transaction isn't so it's not um so linear <laughs> it's not it, it it is that usually it's for um something impactful like i mentioned maternal and in, in, in child care so people are becoming now um because of everything that's happened around data and the u.s election situation for example um awakened a lot of people. So people are becoming more educated about it. And uh, especially the youth are demanding more um, regulations, more around privacy. Um, the researchers are being more vocal about the, the, the having access to data. And because of that, there is more uh, attention being paid to the quality of data um, uh, collected. Governments are still catching up. You have countries such as South Africa in the health sector that is, uh, where they're, they, they're, um, they're usually good with regulations and anyway, but where they've set some regulations for around data privacy. Um, the rest of the countries, I'm doing some work with uh, ministries of health throughout Africa, where we're still um, going through this sort of education phase around the value of, of data 
Um, and the possibilities that exist if, the, if there's quality data collected, um, analyzed and, and, and shared, and um, the link between data and decision making. So, so as people get excited about the potential of introduction of AI, uh, we are, those of us who are introducing these ideas around potential are also responsible for covering um, privacy concerns for, um, for uh, uh, encouraging um, standards and regulations uh, to grow to along with uh, the introduction of these various technologies. So in the private sector, so if you look at uh, banking, if you look at telecommunications, there are, um, you know, what we're introducing to ministries of health are known in, in these sectors. Uh, however, the physical infrastructures doesn't always, um, some of what, uh, what was shared in terms of um, what's required to to ensure proper security, an environment where um, hackers can just, you know, sort of play around. Um, that's that's been made um, very challenging because of just the, the regular infrastructure um, that countries are still building at this point. Over to you. Fascinating. Oh, thank you. Um... Amit, tell me, how do we traverse uh, data privacy across different countries where they have different policies, right? It, it's crucial that we have equal representation of data from patients around the world. So, uh, I think. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. No, I think that's a great, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, we're seeing, especially in Europe with GDPR, a significant amount of data um, scrutiny and, and how, how it's handled, making sure that end users have a full autonomy to decide if they want to share data or not. Um, we're seeing a lot of companies have to um, put dedicated servers and data farms in local countries because the requirement is to not let data leave the country. So if, you know, for example, you're a multinational company and you have a cloud system or, you know, very common um, infrastructure to, to have patient data going through a cloud. Um, a lot of countries in Europe in particular are not, not allowing that data to leave the, the border. And so a lot of companies have to think about how they wanna set up their data sharing capability. So, you know, I think it, it, it does create a barrier and some companies just decide not to traverse that barrier and choose either not to be in, that, in those countries that have more stringent data requirements or data concerns, or they have to add a lot more consent at the beginning of the product to ensure that people are aware of what's happening with their data. So I think, um, you know, it's, 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 I think it's twofold. I think, A, we just have to continue to, um, as companies, be flexible and, and appreciate that we might have to make some solutions like putting, you know, storing data locally um, in those countries that have uh, stringent requirements. I think there's a lot of lobbying that we can do as well. I think we're, you know, all companies I've worked at have worked with international governments to help them understand, you know, what is the value of why, you know, data sharing is so critical, how this informs you know, richer algorithms, how this informs richer products, which are only going to benefit the end user, right? I mean, really, there's a saying that we say, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If we're not getting the volume of data or the quality of data that we want, we can't help people, you know, and, and healthcare is, is ultimately the business of people and wanting to make sure that we get the best technology to people so they can, they can get the best treatment, they can get the best, you know, um, uh, service that they need. So it, we are working to work, you know, we are working with the governments to help them understand, you know, why it's so important for us to be able to get this information. We walk through, you know, that a lot of it's de-identified, you know, it's, it's safe, it's, it's protected. So there's no risk of any, any leak of, of, of personal information, but 
we, we need that, we need that information because again, people are different. The, you know, the, the representation of people in different countries is crucial for us to be able to inform you know, more customized algorithms. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a continuous effort for us to be able to, to um, improve data access. Yeah, I see, I see a few nodding heads. Um, definitely agree uh, on this. Peter, maybe you can tell us some of the primary cybersecurity concerns and risk trends that you see taking place within healthcare today. Um, and even more specifically coming from, um, you know, coming from the pharmaceutical industry um, when it comes to the drug discovery process. Yes, thank you for the question. Um, so there are lots of threats right now. Uh, we so work at Pfizer. There's a lot of things that are coming in as a result of the COVID vaccine to the political and international nature of it. And so we see a lot of larger threats, ransomware, phishing, and everything else, uh, which are something I don't have to deal with on a regular basis, thankfully, since they make things more difficult. But uh, what we are seeing in the pharmaceutical space is that there's still a, a challenge to get the clinical data and the patient records accessible and available to people using drug discovery. Um, some of the drugs that were actually discovered in the clinical space uh, came as a result of a clinical trial. And so some of that information goes back into the drug discovery process and refines the process, looks at the data in different ways. Some of the challenges we see are the proprietary data um, in the cloud versus the on-prem. How do we manage that? It was already mentioned that the, the GPUs are kind of uh, depending on where they're located, they weren't really designed for security. Uh, they, we make different models based on these different models. And as the data sets get larger and larger, we're relying on more and more data to be uh, used from different sources, from drug discovery and the clinical trials to go into that, uh, which means different kinds of solutions. We're heading more to cloud solutions, but a lot of our software solutions cannot be put in the cloud with the clinical data. And so we have different mismatches of the clinical versus the plain drug discovery type of data and how those are different, how those are managed. In addition, we see some challenges with the larger sets of data that are becoming available. For instance, the Broad Institute has different databases of uh, tissue engineering samples that are being made available for general research. Um, other companies are creating microarray sets that are better than the industry standards. They make their own experiments and design it, but they want to share that with large numbers of people. These data sets can't be brought in um, because they're too large. We can't go out and uh, use them publicly because those kind of connections can be tracked. And we don't want to share with the world what kind of things we're looking at. And so we have to come up with larger and more complex arrangements for data sharing. And some of the techniques that we see are the federated data sets, uh, where we have different ways of sharing data without it becoming known to any third party or any other party. And so these arrangements are just at the tip of the iceberg at this point now, but I, I think there's a lot of interest across the industry of how many pharma can work together to share their best practices and data, and perhaps even the algorithms, and apply it to a particular data set to learn more about the overall problems, such as the activity or safety concerns. So I think that's a, a fascinating trend that we're keeping an eye on. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, Ian, maybe you can tell us, do public healthcare systems differ from private healthcare facilities in terms of threat actor behavior? 
Yeah, certainly. Um, so what we've seen is if you have the words research in front of your healthcare facility, uh, that's a very attractive to um, certain nations that are focused on intellectual property theft um, and um, not so much um, a malicious attack, but a very stealthy attempt to get at some of the algorithms that Peter talked about or some of the results um, and formulas that, that are discovered. Um, we see that a lot in private facilities, uh, but private facilities, especially on the research side, also have um, grown to become a very tempting target for cyber criminals to drop ransomware into the environment. Um, and this sort of all, this to a certain extent has more of a problem towards the research end of things. I mean, losing a very large data set that has five or 10 years of, of uh, data compiled uh, is a huge blow to research opportunities and, and having the data to apply AI to look for insights into. Um, but in some cases, it does grind uh, patient care to a halt. Um, however, uh, you know, basically medicine has been practiced all the way back to the ancient Greece. And we go by the principles of it's, if it's outside of you and it should be inside of you, we need to fix that. And if it's inside of you and it really should be outside of you, then we need to fix that. So the actual ability to fix people that are, have been traumatically injured um, isn't impeded as much by the types of attacks that we're seeing. However, having said that, we do have the unfortunate death of at least one person in Germany as a result of a ransomware attack. And this is really important because when you look at the attack surface of a private institution or a private hospital, the assumption is, is that they have money and they will be able to pay an actual ransom. In the public healthcare systems in nations like Germany and the United Kingdom, uh, this could be interpreted and would be leveraged by the governments as an attack on a sovereign piece of um, real estate. And that could elicit a far more um, greater kinetic response from the nation targeted. So I think if, if we see what is going on today, we can draw a line between the attack surface and the risks and the threat models that apply to um, private institutions. And certainly when it's in the public sphere, the government is usually standing right behind that institution and will be, I think the word that we're looking for is displeased with that kind of activity. I have a lot to say, but I wanna move, uh, move the discussion along. Thank you so much, Ian, for that important points and that you've added, I think, here. Um, Peter, maybe you can tell us, you know, COVID-19 has really changed many industries um, when it comes to how they secure their data. Um, besides, you know, obviously working from home, the changes we have um, to our work lifestyle and the way, where and how we're connecting to sensitive networks, but what are the long-term uh, implications in cybersecurity and privacy from these changes? Sure. So I'm gonna I can address that from a uh, healthcare perspective uh, rather than the work from home perspective. Uh, what we've seen is that COVID kind of realized it made us realize that our data is not as good as it we thought it was. It's not as accessible as we thought it was, and security is kind of still being figured out. And so, if we look at the early days from the COVID, we looked at how many could we predict the progression of the disease. 
Well, there actually wasn't a lot of data. Uh, we had a few different organizations that were gathering it, but most of them weren't feeding into it and not feeding into it very regularly. And so it took a while before we kind of spun that up um, as a nation and as in the world. Beyond that, in our company, we realized that some of the models that we had, can we automatically use some of the models to make the best predictions we could as which medicine might treat it as a sign of a secondary use for it? Um, and again, our data wasn't quite set up to answer that question. Um, it wasn't a couple of companies, but most companies struggled with it. We instead went with traditional methods. Um, some of the places where it's really hitting now uh, with the work from home are the clinical trials. And we normally have patients who go to a clinic every couple of weeks. Uh, they have a blood sample, for instance. They get a report on how well it's, their disease is progressing, whether they, they're tolerating the treatment, and how well it's working. And this has been the trend for many years, the randomized clinical trials, but all of a sudden people couldn't go to the clinics. So how could we run the clinical trials and still get significant results? And so that resulted in lots of changes to our, our protocols. The statistical analyses were altered um, to ensure they would still be reliable and perform well. But how do you manage the fact that they're not going to a clinic or they, they miss a clinic because they are they miss a clinic visit because they're affected by COVID. And so there's a lot of work that went in that effort. But the longer term trend is that it's shifting the trials overall. And so we're looking at more wearable sensors. So I mentioned the Fitbit earlier, but we have glorified sensors that can measure different diseases. And instead of going to a clinic and getting a measurement, can we get continuous measurements over time as to how well things are working? Uh, for things like Parkinson's disease, where you can actually measure um, how well the the shaking of their limbs and so on, the gait, uh, the walking and, and so on are affected by a particular medicine, how long it takes to work, when does it become effective, how long does it last, and these kind of questions can be answered much better. Um, there's lots of issues with the data transmission and how do we ensure the data goes securely from the Fitbit type sensor to your home to um, an aggregated clinical repository uh, guaranteeing security. And so there's lots of trends for that. If someone were to put a camera in your apartment to monitor you, you make sure you're okay. Um, there's lots of impacts of that as well, but this is the trend going forward. Definitely, thank you. Um, thank you for that. Amit, when does AI have the potential to become harmful for patients? I mean, I don't know if we're, we're always talking about the benefits of AI and ML, but when, 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 uh, when can it have a negative impact? I mean, when does it become a hindrance and not a benefit? Yeah, I mean, I think, um... And I appreciate the, the mention there was, I think Ian had mentioned that um, casualty in Germany due to the ransomware. And I think those are, are you know, that's the kind of uh, underbelly or I guess the dark side of, of this, you know, because technology is, you know, can be harmful. Um, I, I think of, you know, for example, at Medtronic, we were um, working with IBM Watson. And I think what was happening was that this idea of AI and machine learning becoming so powerful and almost insinuating that we can cure everything. And that you can cure cancer, you can cure, you know, genetic diseases. We have to be very careful with what we um, promise, right? Because um, machine learning does not, you know, does not change sometimes the prognosis. Machine learning does not change the progression of a disease. The body still the body, and so I think we need to be very careful with what we can commit to in terms of how we're using these tools. These tools are incredible. There's no question that they're going to transform the way that we deliver healthcare, that we that we see better outcomes. I mean, ultimately, the goal, everything that I do in terms of bringing AI or machine learning into into products is, is to improve outcomes. 
um, so that we do see longevity. But you know, there's a there's there's a limit, and and certain diseases will not get cured. Certain things will not get you know fixed. So we just have to be very careful, especially like in the marketing and promotion of these technologies. I think it's very easy for people to misunderstand these capabilities and think that it will it will solve all of healthcare. It will not. You know, I think. Um, Humans are still humans, and you know our physicians are still physicians, and it's not, it's not a it's a science and an art. It's not it's not perfect, and so um, we just we just have to be careful. You know that there was a, a bit of a marketing um, interest interesting situation where I think someone at Sloan Kettering Hospital thought that IBM Watson would cure cancer. It caused a bit of a PR nightmare because you know people were coming in to say, "Listen, I I want the cure," and and can't commit to that. So um, it's 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 a very interesting. Um, line that you have to straddle in terms of really touting the capabilities, but making sure people understand that it still doesn't replace the fact that diseases have the mind of their own, viruses have the mind of their own. We're living that today with COVID and recognizing that no amount of testing, no amount of vaccines, no amount of um, preventative care can ultimately save all lives. So I think that's where we have to play the game. So, yeah. Definitely. And there's a whole aspect of discrimination and bias within um, within AI as well, that's worth addressing within healthcare, which uh, can cost people, you know, potentially their lives. Um, so uh, but that, that's a whole nother topic in itself. Thank you, Amit. Um, Ian, I wanted to ask you, how is CTI or cyber threat intelligence best consumed by healthcare understanding the technical and time constraints of healthcare IT? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of industries, um, healthcare has been struggling um, mostly because of, I would say, legacy infrastructure that in some cases dates back to the 90s. Um, and one of the problems is, is, and I maintain that this is actually not kind of a cybersecurity problem. It's that the older the stuff is, the, the less robust it's going to be to the modern type of adversary that we're seeing. And so when I talk to people about, you know, how does cyber threat intelligence help a hospital defend itself, for instance, it really starts with the external attack surface. What do you have exposed? What kind of state is that exposure? Is anything actually vulnerable at the moment? And, you know, continuously monitoring that external attack surface. Um, this is a tough sell to organizations that are always trying to make the trade-off between more doctors and nurses or more cybersecurity. And, and so you really have to start at, the, at, the, at, at sort of the easy button, and that is gain the situational awareness and work with things like you know, the, the healthcare ISAC to understand the types of attacks that organizations are facing. And hopefully you won't be the first organization to face the attack and then you could operationalize that intelligence knowing that you know there's a bunch of impersonation attacks coming by from research institutes please don't click on those links and in some cases depending on the level of maturity rather than it not even getting onto the desktop of researchers like Peter and Amit but actually preventing it from even getting inside your organization in the first place by by reacting rapidly. But, you know, you exhaust limited IT and cybersecurity resources in healthcare 
at the at the level and I would say volume of the attacks that are coming in. So so it's a it's a double edged sword. It either tells you how bad things are out there and how bad you might get hit, but at the same time, it gives you an opportunity to take a risk based approach and at least nip off the ones that seem to be you know the most destructive or the most malicious um, early in the in the attack phase of the bad guys. You get from your perspective, what are some of the resources that are lacking um, within Africa and just across the global south when it comes to fighting privacy risks and threats? Um, is lack of people with qualified skills? Um, what is it that's holding Africa's data infrastructure back? I think well, it's some of the some of the questions that some of the comments that have been um, touched on already. Uh, it's the we are still working miracles, especially for African countries with very um, ancient <laughs> uh, technology infrastructures, much of it inherited from um, Europe or, or the US. There is a, um, a um, it, we're renewing uh, our, our infrastructure right now, but with the power issues we have, um, it, it, you know, it's 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 difficult to establish the proper just physical infrastructure in place. Uh, I mentioned earlier, much of the data that's collected to, uh, in in Africa is transferred, and that that transfer process is enough to scare anyone who understands um, the value of the information that's being transferred. Much of the data collected from rural areas, for example, because of lack of connectivity, is being transferred um, utilizing personal computers that could then be um, connected to um, an internet source uh, in, a, in a city type setting uh, and then sent to if it's um, if it's going to a research uh, project in the US or or, or in Europe um, it's then transferred to to the cloud um, to these spaces we don't have um, much in terms of um, infrastructure for data management in, in, in our country, at least this is um, true for the health sectors. In terms of um, skills, there are increasingly, um, there, there, are, there are researchers, perhaps not enough for every single country, but there are enough researchers. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work in Latin America as well at the moment, uh, in, both, in both Africa and um, Latin America, the two places I know uh, most, and certainly in Asia. What's missing are um, those who are leading these research projects are rarely people from those areas. And so, and that's sort of where the power, that's sort of, that is where the power lies. Th those who are um, funding and leading this research determine who gets to be involved. So when we're talking about um, the development of, 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 of AI and what's required for it to, to function, or if we're talking about what's required for massive amounts of data to be protected, having people who understand the context, who have worked miracles within that context um, is, is, is key. Um, so researchers in Africa, they don't necessarily, um, they are paying attention to the uh, uh, to to cybersecurity. However, because I mentioned this idea of data transfer happening on personal computers, um, so it, it 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 gives this false sense of well, we're not taking as much risk because the data is happening from you know from uh, a device is collected. The transfer is happening from the device to my computer, and then my computer isn't connected to anything anyway. So it 
it's fine. So there's still some beliefs that needs to be um, dealt with and, and changed. But I think uh, my one of the reasons why I, I continue to speak about, um, I mean, <laughs> the issues of, you know, big, but I continue to speak about the importance of including researchers from various parts of the world as we develop um, our data infrastructure. Uh, it, it, it's exactly that we we need um, we need to expand understanding on 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 all ends, understanding of the various contexts, um, so that those are taken into account as we develop uh, not just uh, algorithms but also the mechanisms which we store, manage, and um, and 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 uh, share that data. Uh, but also uh, those who are working in various contexts, not contributing data to to research projects, to understand the importance of taking. Uh, security measures the important governments want regulators to understand the importance of having um, regulations and the 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 true owners of data in my opinion people who are providing their information to understand um, the importance of consent um, and 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 demanding uh, that their information is managed and um, and protected uh, adequately thank you Yugit. And um, before we move on to the next topic, which um, focuses a bit more on security solutions and approaches, I wanted to ask Amit a uh, final question. Um, are there certain areas where AI doesn't um, have a place in healthcare, certain cancers or a genetic manufacturing areas maybe that are not appropriate for AI? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a provocative question, I think, for me, I think particularly the genetic engineering space can get very tricky. I think we've seen potential misuse around, you know, even people manufacturing their own babies. Um, you start to get into ethical areas, right? Where I think, in fact, the technology has developed so fast that we don't even have, you know, legal or ethical positions on this because it was never something that, you know, lawyers and, and ethicists ever had to consider or grapple with is, this idea that we can use technology and harness it to create our future, you know, progeny, which you know I think is is just getting really into like some very gray area. So, I I do think that there's, it's not so much that there is in areas where we can't apply AI. I just think that we have to make sure that the legal, you know, ethics community has has caught up and is able to provide some guidance in terms of what is the appropriate application for AI, and you know, you know it should be legal cybersecurity, ethicists, you know, folks that can guide us in making sure that we're not taking advantage or abusing, um, you know, certain ramifications. Like, I, I just, I don't think we've, we've thought about that from, from a legal perspective. And I just think as we're getting into, in particular with, with genetics, I think that's really where you get, you know, you, you know, you can eventually perhaps remove an entire, you know, um, strand of any, you know, some, some, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't even know. I think, you know, you could, you could remove a certain hair color or you could remove a certain, you know, um, handicap, which is not, you know, what we should do. I mean, you know, we obviously need to have, you know, all people of all colors and shapes and sizes and capabilities and, and, and orientations. And so I, I just think you start to get into a very um, dangerous area. So I'm keen to see if we can have, you know, other bodies provide us with some, some governance around that. Yeah, and I think you're right, it's a longer ethical um, ethical discussion. Maybe moving on to the 
data security, the next topic of data security um, solutions and approaches, maybe you can uh, share with us how you think um, we can balance the individuality of healthcare, but also while still applying the power of AI and the need to drive towards some standardization so that our AI tools are, are powerful and wide reaching. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, I think so. So on the topic of data privacy, I think, again, we need to, you know, I, I just don't think there's enough, there's enough jurisdiction or enough people have put their heads together to figure out what, you know, what is right and what is wrong. Um, you know, look, you look at COVID, I mean, you know, is, is data, you know, is, do we have the right to data to, to be able to develop vaccines to, to develop a solution for something that is, that is, you know, killing people at such an astronomical rate? I mean, you could argue that we're probably, we, there probably was some violations of HIPAA or some violations of, of, of you know, scientific work that we had to, we had to violate just to get a, a solution out into the market, right? So that's also where I get nervous about AI. It's like, you know, if you can, if you can commit and promise to a solution because you've got this technology, you know, but you need people to provide information. We, we needed data on COVID. We needed, we needed symptoms. We needed, we needed information on people and COVID that we probably had to, we had to take some liberties just because we were so eager to find a solution. Now, where, where does that line fall? You know, cause you could argue that every AI informed technology is trying to achieve a solution. It's trying to help someone in some way. And I just don't know, you know, where, where the line falls in terms of, you know, where can you protect privacy? Where can you protect, um, you know, individuality and, and still be able to bring out a, you know, something for the greater good of humanity. So it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm thankful for all the, the liberties that, that people took to get to a solution for COVID because I think all of us want to get to some, some semblance of normalcy and wanted to get life back to normal. But I think there probably are going to be some interesting legal battles ensuing in the next couple of years based on some data privacy violations that had to happen. So I think I think we're about to enter into a, a time where data privacy is going to be is going to be front and center. So yeah, yeah, and I think for that to happen, you know, um, patients and consumers need to first recognize you know the real power and value in their data um, in order for those protections to really take take hold within the public space within the public sphere. Um, maybe that will help drive some policy too. Peter, in the pharmaceutical field, clinical trials um, are relying on, you know, we just spoke about, and we just spoke about how clinical trials are relying on secure patient data. Um, how do cybersecurity systems are, play a role in the process of the collection and, and security of this data? Uh, sure. So we have many layers of security, particularly for the clinical trial data, which has the patient information. And so first of all, there's, there's blinded data. Uh, on top of that, we have different systems that are highly regulated. Um, you have to have permissions to be able to, and, and qualifications to be able to write the software, to change the software, to access the software and everything else. And all these things are logged and monitored and all these records are reported to the FDA. On top of that, there's cybersecurity issues that um, solutions that protect the data. Uh, there's also lots of information, lots of issues in the transmission of the data. Uh, for instance, we had this one trial that involved a, a test that was given to a patient followed by an MRI. So a small amount of data, a large amount of data, both of which had to be transmitted to another lab solution. And so you had to have people who are qualified to draft the data, transmit the data, store the data, and so on. Um, lots of different hurdles had to be overcome for that particular project. And this is similar for many of the clinical trials. And so there's lots of layers that have to go through in order to uh, safeguard that data. And so it's highly regulated. 
Thank you, Peter. Um, you get back to you. Um, are there regulations in place when it comes to data use distribution um, and protection in Africa? And, and is there a robust enough information infrastructure, sorry, in place to ensure proper privacy measures are being implemented? Um, overall, I, I, what um, so what Peter described is what every project that I've worked on, whether it was an emergency response, a vaccine campaign, or a smaller pilot project, strive to do um, to the best of our ability. However, the resources uh, usually available did not make that possible. But again, that was at, at our own discretion because we wanted to um, to to do good but but do right by the people who we were working with what um some of what um amit uh talked about is sort of um what ends up um taking place where um you often see sort of liberties being taken not um not necessarily because especially in an emergency situation because the, the amount of time it would take to educate the public um, and to educate the regulators, you just don't have it when you're trying to respond, you know, for example, for an Ebola outbreak. So you sort of uh, take action and then um, in retrospect, begin to, to educate uh, countries in the event that you needed to do, you know, um, something similar in place. So, uh, so the regulations are being built based on these various experiences. Uh, and what's happening now is that you've got competing interests, obviously. So various organizations, be it multilateral organizations, nonprofits, especially we have a strong presence um, in low and middle income countries um, and private sector also, especially pharmaceutical companies who are looking to impact um, uh, these regulations, not necessarily to benefit their own efforts, but what, what I admire about people I meet who work throughout Africa or other low and middle income countries is this um, passion and true desire to do right. And so um, at the end, some, sometimes it does benefit their work, but most of the time it's because they really believe this is what, this is the right thing to do. So you've got um, governments hearing, getting advice from from different people and having to sift through all of that information to determine what regulations are required for their own countries. So that's the process that's happening now. In terms around data, um, there, there, there are strategies around the use of technology in the health sector, but data is still sort of, uh, it, it remains at the discretion of whoever is leading um, these efforts. But um, I know for Africa at the moment, the African Union is looking into this. And so we're hoping that in the next um, several years, there will be uh, some guidance for countries in terms of, of, of how to, uh, what types of regulations uh, need to be in place. But at the moment, not so much. And, and the infrastructure, which I've spoken about before, remains an issue. So even if, even when we try to, we want to be able to um, limit who manages the data, often it's not, um, it, or who's, who has access, often it's, it's, it's difficult. What happens with health, you train whoever is, especially when you deal, most, most of the continent is still residing in rural areas. So you train whoever you're able to find who can carry on the tasks. And, and, and you know, it's, it's um, and you trust that they'll, they'll, they'll do the right thing. And at, at the moment, there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't. So you sort of, 
getting whoever you can to do what you need them to do. You train them, they do the work, and then you sort of, you know, keep it moving. Um, but there are increasingly, um, there are increasingly um, data science programs that are um, being developed by universities. Uh, medical programs are including technology and data in, in their training. And so I do see progress happening uh, in, you know, in the next five to 10 years. But at the moment, um, it is still something that's, uh, that's concerning a lot of people. Um, but the reason why it hasn't sort of blown out of control is because of uh, what I mentioned, the, the strong desire I see generally for people to do the right thing. Wow, that's super fascinating. Thank you um, for sharing that perspective with us. And um, Amit, another question for you that I that I wanted to get to, um, and because we talk about you know uh, data privacy, we talk about um, you know, the hesitation that consumers and patients have with sharing their data. And um, from your perspective, how do we get patients more comfortable with sharing their data, since it you know. It, helps us to improve our AI tools and create much more powerful algorithms and do more stuff and <laughs> better and faster. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the obvious like go-to answer might be like, you know, there could be some monetary um, reward or some sort of financial incentive to be able to allow people to give their data as, in, in exchange for some value. I think obviously money is not typically, I think ethical or, or necessarily allowed. So, you know, you might, you might do some sort of uh, setup where you say, listen, if you provide us some data, we might give you early access to a new innovative tool, right? You can be an early adopter or you can have early access to a new technology because you were able to give us information to help us develop it. Um, I think also just, I mean, it's, it's continu continually showing the, the benefit. Like, I mean, what outcomes have we, have we improved on? Um, I think people have to appreciate what, not, not everyone understands the, the cause and effect. I think not everyone appreciates that what they see a device coming out now was on the, on the, was on the back of you know, data that was provided four or five years ago. I mean, people don't see the entire, you go through the food chain, right? They don't see the entire um, start to finish. When I see something that comes out, I don't appreciate that there was probably many, many volumes of data sets that had to be analyzed and, and processed for us to then get to an accuracy or whatever it is that now your, your technology is achieving. So I think the more that you can introduce people to the fact that nothing, nothing happens out of nowhere, like nothing is an accident, that there is a lot of work that goes into behind the scenes to connect the dots of what was provided in previous trials and, and, and patients to be able for us to refine what is now available. So the more that you make that available and transparent, I think the more you're going to be able to find um, people that are willing. Also, I mean, I, I, I argue that like those very lengthy like privacy agreements in terms of con like terms of service that people just ignore when they're getting onto apps or tools. I mean, we have to find a way to kind of digest, like condense that so that people know what they're signing up for and they can appreciate, you know, that some of this is actually, you know, to their benefit or to the community benefit down the road. And it's not just, you know, a big brother, big sister type of like, just we're just trying to steal your data, you know, for our own benefit. So um, it's education transparency that ultimately will um, will unlock and, and I think motivate folks to, to share. So, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I think also just having better safeguards in place, having more secure data centers um, can do a lot towards, um, you know, instilling trust within the, within the public sphere about um, data security and privacy. Um, you know, 
Okay, well, this is a long discussion. I, I want to move a bit forward with, I have a few more questions and then we're gonna to get to Q&A. Um, so if anyone in the audience, if you have questions for anyone on our panel, um, and we have, we have some really interesting um, uh, thought leaders here. So feel free, ask, ask away, send us your questions. Uh, my next question is for Ido. Um, what is the difference between the various uh, types of privacy enhancing techniques that exist uh, for protesting, protecting the processing of sensitive data um, on public infrastructure? Sure. Um, thanks, thanks for the interesting uh, question. I think uh, I can uh, point on three main uh, technologies in this uh, privacy domain. Uh, there, are, there are more, but I think for that scope of uh, webinar, um, we can discuss them. Uh, the first would be uh, data anonymization or pseudo-anonymization. Um, the second will be uh, homomorphic encryption. And the third uh, will be confidential computing. So maybe to start with data anonymization, basically it's the process of uh, protecting uh, private or sensitive information by uh, erasing or masking or swapping or synthesize um, personal identifiers from a data set. So every data that can connect an individual to a data set will be uh, changed or swapped or uh, synthesized. But the issue is that even though you, you do that and you take off those identifiers, attackers can use a de-anonymization uh, methods to retrace the data and um, eventually um, harm the, uh, the privacy of, uh, of the user, the, the user data. The reason is that because it can be done because usually data sets are not processing only through one channel. So sometimes you can look in several data sets, several environments, several sources, and to do an, a correlation and use a de-anonymization method uh, to retrace the, the process. This is one. Um, second, I guess, uh, one, one of the biggest cons of these uh, techniques is that it's, it is not a generic. So it, it takes a lot of time and effort to customize uh, each process for each uh, use case. So it's a, it, it might result in a lot of effort. And secondly, uh, basically you lose a lot of data, a lot of information that you might want to use in the AI system. For example, if you want to do a specific per, uh, personalized marketing uh, application, AI application, you're gonna do it. So I, th I think this covers uh, the first technique of um, data anonymization. The second would be a homomorphic encryption with, which is considered to be the holy grail of uh, privacy because it's, it's basically built on um, cryptographic um, encryption uh, mathematics that enable to run analytics and execution on in encrypted data. So basically the data can be always encrypted and you can run analytics on it in a public cloud or wherever. And then you don't need to decrypt the data and then it's immune to, uh, to privacy on to hacks. So this is about how, how homomorphic encryption built on 
um, which, which might be very, very um, good in terms of privacy, but then it's lack of uh, performance. So if you want to run AI application, it's, it's really uh, not practical these days. And last would be confidential computing, which is what we are doing at the Hub Security today. We are building um, hardware novel uh, architecture and software, basically to enable a secure system, secure compute that you can run uh, any type of application, AI application or different application without the need to encrypt it. So it's, you think of it as a secure computer that you can run any application that's basically from the outside, it looks like it's encrypted. So you gain a uh, high throughput, you gain AI application and no one can access it, but the one who has the key. So I think that that's, that's the confidential compute part. And one of the cons, it's basically you need a hardware and some solutions in the market today requires an application modification. That would be one of the, the cons today, but not all of them. Um, that's it. Great, thank you, Ido. And I know it's a really long uh, discussion and it's a much deeper topic that we can spend a lot of time talking and discussing together. So um, I'm glad we got to just touch on it a bit more today and on the topic specifically of confidential computing uh, as well, which is uh, super fascinating. Um, you get, how are countries throughout Africa leveraging innovations um, to advance their data strategies? We spoke a little bit about it already, but maybe you can also shed some light on who is involved in determining the adoption of these new technologies. I think you could actually, it's, it's good that it's following Ido's um, uh, responses, uh, because what's happening at the moment is um, that advances in technology, they're actually pushing um, countries to um, to put proper measures in place to think about regulations that they're supposed to to have um, without without public um, knowledge of, of these advances many countries wouldn't have a fraction of, of, of what's in place um, at the moment uh, in terms of uh, so the the whole discussion for example around um, consent and privacy and cybersecurity, what I'm, I'm seeing increasingly, all um, sort of e-government projects, digital health projects, there includes a cybersecurity component, which just uh, two years ago was not at all um, the case. And so because that discussion is happening uh, broadly, it, it is uh, also leading uh, governments to require a cybersecurity component in every technology-based project that comes in place. In terms of who decides, uh, at the moment there is still there is a a, a bit of um, it's an interesting relationship that um, that that takes place. So there are certain countries, uh, I've named South Africa, Nigeria, um, Ethiopia are just a few. There are there are others as well. Where um, Sierra Leone, where because of um, the tech, or Cameroon, the technology movement that's that's um, growing um, in country has made uh, regulators quite savvy, and and so they make demands on uh, what needs to be in place when a technology-based project um, enters uh, a country. Uh, so, in those instances, uh, you've got 
these governments were determining, um, and I'm speaking a lot about government because I work in the development sector and those are the entities that we primarily work with. And in other countries, uh, much of the decisions of who, what types of data should be collected, how, they, how it needs to be stored, analyzed, um, the visualization that's made available to country continues to be decided by um, you know, the, the development partners, so NGOs, um, uh, donor organizations, um, uh, in, in, and there are increasingly uh, private sector entities, uh, lo local private sector entities that are entering also the digital health system, especially with the, the, the increasing acceptance of uh, use of AI. There are small companies that are created, research entities that are created in African countries, and, and most of them are funded by um, by philanthropic organizations, but there are also collaborations with pharmaceutical companies, for example. And so they get to have some type of a say uh, of what happens. But, it, but uh, right now, um, a lot of research institutions, um, Europe-based, uh, uh, US and Canada-based, and then um, now also China-based are determining a lot of what, what is going on. Uh, and so in, in, in a way it's good because it's pushing advancement and it's pushing growth and it's, um, it's pushing countries to invest in, in power, for example, in connectivity that will allow this and, and local entrepreneurs are benefiting from that as well. But on the other side, if we, when we look at, um, you know, uh, I think it was Amit who mentioned that this were in, in the business of, uh, of, um, the, the patients are uh, customers and the majority of patients are not um, uh, considered, maybe the right word, but they're not at the forefront of, of uh, these decisions. And so, they, so um, any, type of, uh, any type of input that's going into shaping technology, uh, use strategies or privacy or regulation isn't necessarily including their perspective. And so that's where there's a big gap. And, and, and so there's a need to continue to educate the populations about technology as well. So they can become as savvy as the regulators of the entrepreneurs and therefore be able to, um, to not just demand privacy, but also say, hey, this is what we're dealing with. And we know that there is AI and it can help with diagnostics. Um, and it's, but it's only diagnosing everything as malaria. We needed to also consider these um, neglected diseases. Uh, could, could you include that in, in your process? So, so um, the more uh, there's a diversity of voices, the more there's a perspective of, uh, of the people we're claiming to, to want to help. Uh, I think the more, um, the more robust, the more accurate and the more um, impactful uh, technological advances would be. I know I went a bit out of scope, the scope of your question, but I, I wanted to just uh, plant those seeds out there. So yes, uh, the, these types of discussions, what they do is they then plant seeds for the government and they're thinking, oh yeah, okay, there is this. Okay, we can do clinical trials. You know, these are the types of, this is what you need to have in place. And what would happen would then be at the next ministerial meeting, you'll hear discussions around, oh, well, we really need to think about interoperability. We need to think about, you know, data transfer between various entities. And this, is, this has been the trend. Uh, and the evolution of, of um, technology uh, in, in Africa.
Uh, super fascinating. Thank you so much for, for providing this perspective and I think, uh, you know, highlighting the importance of empowering patients, um, with, you know, how their data is being used. Um, Ian, I wanted to ask you, talking about, you know, some security approaches, how does network segmentation add security value to healthcare? Yeah, yeah, well, it's sort of like one of the places that you can start um, in, in an organization that may be budgetarily constrained. A lot of the times the technology already exists on the infrastructure. I think that the, the two big values is to really isolate um, the modalities and the picture archiving systems and anything related to patient diagnostics into a protected environment that has restricted access. That's the first place to start. Um, the problem that we face is uh, a massive one because information is only good if it can get to the people that can action it, right? So even though you're gonna go down this road of like building this sort of bastion around the critical systems to help inpatient uh, outcomes, you still have to be cognizant of the real world requirements of you know, other departments such as HIS and, and uh, reception and, and those kind of things. So it's, it's, a, it's a monumental challenge. What, what I'm seeing though is the secondary benefit to this really uh, comes from when a cyber attack is imminent or occurring in the organization, the ability to isolate segments of your network to prevent it from getting any further or expanding uh, becomes critical. We've seen the results of what flat networks look like, especially in the colonial pipeline attack and some hospitals, um, one named Presbyterian, I believe, where once the malware got established, it was able to run pretty much unimpeded across the entire, in the entire network. So this is one of the key aspects of architectural review and design is to really figure out how to detect something that is trying to get in or something that is trying to get out that shouldn't. Thank you, Ian. Um, I have a few, a few final questions here. And really quickly, Peter, maybe you could just talk a little bit about federated data because it seems to be rising across industries. And where do you see opportunities to use these kinds of approaches within the pharmaceutical industry? Sure. Um, so federated data basically allows you to share data without actually giving it away. Uh, and so one of the early examples I saw was, can you figure out people's salaries um, without having to share your own salary? And so you put it into a system and allow people to do some processing on it, and you can figure out where you stand relative to everyone else. Well, if you take that same idea and you can apply it to drug discovery, well, you could share different assay data, for instance, and how different compounds uh, might perform against a, a certain toxicity or, or a certain endpoint. And so if you combine that across an industry or perhaps with an academic partner, you can then share your data freely without actually having to share anything through this uh, federated data type of approach. And so it allows you to combine different data sources together to draw the inferences from the, make the better models and then get the results of those things um, to use to improve everyone's results uh, without any competitive uh, precursor of, of sharing the actual data itself. And so there's lots of opportunities between academic institutions, between uh, pharma and those institutions and across pharma itself. And so there's different groups that are forming to provide such uh, resources. Um, Amazon has some new technologies that are providing it as well. And I think it's a really exciting area to allow greater um, 
collaboration between organizations. Definitely. And um, Ido, maybe you can talk a little bit about zero trust. How can zero trust health organizations comply with healthcare regulation? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, so several thoughts on the zero trust model. Basically what, what it says, trust no one, right? Um, that's that's one of our uh, basic thoughts in hub security when we are reaching to an organization trying to find um, a solution to. Basically we assume the network or the data center or the cloud, everything is fully compromised, all servers, laptops, whatever. That, that's the spirit of looking into a um, zero model or zero trust model. And once you understand that, that everything is compromised or can be compromised, you understand that the critical data or sensitive information must be always secure, right? From the moment it's um, created, it should be encrypted. When you send it to someone in transit, it should be encrypted. When you store it, it should be encrypted. And even more important, when you execute, like when you are actually using it, when the, when the data is in plain text, it should be secured as well. So the whole life cycle, once you understand that it's, it's compromised, you should secure all life cycle of data or information, very uh, sensitive information. Secondly, what, what Zero Trust model says, you should check and verify each request or each, each, each action that requires a use of data. So you need to authenticate it, you need to verify it, you need to write logs in a secure place, and you need to uh, enforce organization uh, policies and rules on those actions. So those are some of the um, basic characteristics or tools that um, might really help organization to comply with uh, HIPAA and GDPR and other uh, privacy regulation. Thank you, Ido. And Ian, tell me, are there easy wins in the health in healthcare when it comes to healthcare cybersecurity? For example, if you had a, a greenfield opportunity to just to improve cybersecurity, and um, what are a few of the first steps that you would uh, you would take, and what would your approach be? Yeah, certainly. Well, it would look at the external attack surface and what you have exposed to the internet and if it's vulnerable. And that is the absolute, I would say, top priority, followed by show me the oldest things that you have in your facility and let's figure out how to build a project around getting rid of legacy technology. This is one of sort of the dirty little secrets in the industry is that in a lot of cases, our cybersecurity problem has been inherited over many, many years. And that a lot of what is deployed has vulnerabilities that just can't be fixed anymore. So in a large, in a, in a, in a, in large organizations, cybersecurity has to work at the procurement level, at the project management office level, at the, at the legal um, level, um, in order to try and insert cybersecurity into a focused response of the IT lifecycle of the organization. 
right? Your attack surface on unpatched Windows 7 boxes is a lot bigger than your attack surface on unpatched Windows 10 boxes, right? Because the Windows 7 technology has been around for 10, 12 years. The Windows 10 technology has only been around for, I believe, about three, four years. So you have this, you have this situations that evolve. And I think the last thing I would do is really become an approachable cybersecurity department and help try and change the culture uh, so that folks understand, you know, just what the adversary is looking for, what they're doing to try and manipulate you and um, help them build a culture of security and awareness. And so that's, you know, just sort of the six month mission, figure out what you have, figure out what's most vulnerable and figure out a plan to deal with it. Thank you, Ian. Uh, final question before we move into Q&A, and just a reminder to our audience, if you have any more questions, you can drop them in the Q&A below. Um, and I guess, um, Peter, I'm going to ask you this, and, you know, uh, okay, I, I will ask it, um, with all the added safeguarded, uh, all the added safeguards of data, um, how has that impacted your work um, in AI at Pfizer? or sure. in general, maybe not a Pfizer specifically, but I mean, I'm sure that you have you know, a lot to say on this. <laughs> sure, um, Ian's gonna cringe when I say this, but think about the good old days. Uh, we had data that was sitting on our computer. I have an intern who needs to get my data up. I'm gonna use my USB drive. I'm gonna plop it on there, move it over, no problem. No, we, they took away our USB drives. Uh, we can't even plug them in anymore, it doesn't work. So how do I get my data to that person? Well. I can get it. I can mail it. Maybe that's not very good. I can put it in some third party place. Not very good, but we can figure out some ways of doing it. So now let's ramp it up. It's now 10 terabytes of data. I have to share not with my intern, but also with an academic partner. And it's got confidential data. What do I do with it? Um, I have no place to put it. It's very difficult. And if I think about pharma in general, we have this problem over and over again, because our focus for the last 20, 30, 40 years has been on storing the data to make it available for regulatory authorities. And now with this whole revolution in AI, we have to change that. We now have to focus on using that data for something beyond our first purpose that we had on our desktop for. So it's a complete shift. And so the solution that people come up with is these new fancy containers that I guess Ian was talking about. Well, let's put it in some kind of shielded place and they have done that. And so they, they put a security layer on top of that and they put containers in there, but not the standard containers, they put different containers with security. And then they make it uh, accessible through a particular pipeline. So I can't do my Oracle call. I can't do my normal SQL call. I can't access it through any normal method. Then they said, well, how do I access my Python calls? Well, no, you can't access it with Python. So then they added that on that, but then they couldn't access it with GPUs. Um, and so then we have to figure out how to put GPUs and make the security work for all that. My poor intern, um, he just wants to run this stuff, but he has to learn how to get into the system, how to get into the container, how to run the Python through the container, how to figure out how to transfer it to the GPU system and so on. It goes on and on. And so it's become more distant and further accessible with more training, but it is more secure. Thank you, Peter. And much shorter response than I expected. And, and so, so that's, thank you for that. Um, so now I'd like to move on to, <laughs> to Q&A. And um, just have a few questions here. You get a question for you. Um, how do you think that? Um, how do you think that AI um, or this, you know innovative technologies like AI can use to better be used and leveraged to better understand um, the issues that exist within um, 
the healthcare sector in Africa? Yes, so uh, I know we're, we're developing solutions to solve problems, um, but one of the biggest problems that exists, especially throughout Sub-Saharan sub Africa, is just our the level of understanding of the issues that we're at, we, we face. And so we are highly dependent on, um, on partners who identify a very specific issue of interest and develop a solution just for that. And it's so customized that it can be utilized elsewhere. One of the reasons what actually got me excited when I even discovered AI um, a few years back was just like, oh goodness, there is a mechanism to, um, to analyze all these um, data and see what, uh, I know Peter talked about the, the requirement, um, the, the, the trend to, um, to use data beyond our intended purpose. And I think one of, <laughs> that could be something that benefits um, the entire um, Sub-Saharan Africa um, uh, continent. And, and so we can, we can better understand what we actually need. One of the reasons I, uh, I strongly believe from working in deploying, um, developing solutions, deploying, and then in, and, and then um, as a, as a, on, on policy, uh, it's it just seeing the whole spectrum and seeing that at various stages, there's a lack of understanding of what's actually going on. So whatever solutions we, you know, we work hard to develop is not helping move us forward by much. And so I see, um, I see the capabilities that exist in AI as the only way we can actually, you know, people call Africa the dark continent, not just, you know, for our skin color, but just because it's so, it's an abyss, we don't understand the problems. And to me, AI can be, um, can help us do that. And once we understand that problem, um, the problems, our solutions are um, fit to purpose, targeted, uh, actually address our problems. And I think that's really where we'll see change happening. And we're already seeing that, sorry, um, I get passionate about this. We're already seeing that uh, with, uh, you know, areas like banking. The minute we understood people's behaviors around uh, or understood that people are willing to, you know, share money uh, virtually, because initially we thought, oh, that's not, we saw it, we, it, it, it's everywhere now. I mean, my grandmother, um, she's no longer with us, but she was using it in her 80s. Um, she was using mobile money in the 80s. So I think, you know, as uh, the more we understand um, the fact that, you know, the, 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 the needs and the, and, and the issues that people are trying to solve, the better uh, um, our solutions are going to be. And, and that's where we're going to see progress. So for me, um, as much as we're looking at, you know, diagnostics, we're looking at, um, other areas where AI could be useful, I'm seeing it as a the 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 mechanism for us to really understand um, our specific issues that need to be solved. Wonderful, thank you. And I have a final Q and A here, um, which I guess I guess I'm just going to throw to the group. And whoever would like to respond, feel free to jump in. Um, we have a question here: How can we find threats on medical equipment with use of tools? Or do we need to use AI or machine learning to see the attack vectors on medical domain? For example, we have companies such as Johnson & Johnson, Smith, Nephew, uh, Abbott, um, I think I don't know if I'm reading this right, Abbott, uh, LSD, and Medtronic. Um, and I don't, I think it's, if maybe they're looking for a more technical response, but feel free to just add, um, anyone would like to respond, they can add what they 
right. Um, that's okay. It's, it's already uh, it's been a long webinar. Um, so uh, with that, I think um, I just want to, to say thank you everyone for joining us today. And um, I think we will wrap up here. Thank you to our speakers, um, Ido Helstock. Thank you to Peter Hernstock, Amitja Sipora, and Yuget Diakabana. Um, Ian, thank you so much for joining us as well. We hope that you're staying uh, safe and healthy at home. And if you want to get in touch with any of today's panelists, uh, feel free to reach out to them directly. All of today's attendees will be receiving an email in the coming days with the contact information of each of our panelists. Um, so don't be afraid to drop them a line if you have any further questions on any of today's topics. Um, and if you want to stay up to date on upcoming webinars from Hub Security, um, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also check out our weekly digest on Medium um, for the latest stories um, in the cyber and security sphere. Thank you again to our speakers for a wonderful discussion. And we will see you guys next time. Thank you, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank you.